Thank you, Emma. It's good having you back. Let's all stand. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hope you're doing well. We have a good night tonight. We have Pastor Ed bringing the word. We got a brand new guest artist called the Martins with us tonight. And we're going to open by the reading of Psalm 81. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Let's stop there and pray. Father God, we delight in your presence, Lord. We delight in bringing you praise. And we pray tonight that as we enter into this time of worship, that you would receive our praise, Lord, that you would work upon our hearts, that we would humble ourselves to allow you to work upon our hearts, Lord God, and speak into our lives, Lord. Be with Pastor Ed as he brings the word tonight. Be with the Martins as they share the music that you bless them with. May it all be used for your glory. And we pray these things in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you guys turn around and say hello to each other and then we will worship. I give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. And for He is good, He's above all things. His love endures forever. The sing praise. The sing praise. With a mighty hand. And an outstretched arm His love endures forever And for the life that has been reborn His love endures forever I sing praise I sing praise I sing praise I sing Forever God is faithful, forever God is strong, forever God is with us forever, and forever. And from the rising to the setting sun, from the rising to the setting sun, His love endures forever, and by the grace of God we will carry on. His love endures forever, a secret, a secret, a secret, a secret, and forever God is. God is with us forever. And forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. Forever God is with us forever. 
the name above all other names the name above all other Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful with your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place though I walk. Up through the wilderness, blessed be your name. And every blessing you pour out, all will turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name where the sun's shining down on me and the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road Marked with suffering Though there's pain in the offering Blessed be your name And every blessing you pour out All turn back to praise And when the darkness closes in Lord, still I will say Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name And you give and take You give and take away You give and take away My heart will choose to say For blessed be your name You give and take away You give and take away my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Amen. 
Well, we got a treat tonight for the first time ever. Put your hands together and join me in welcoming the Martins.
Thank you. Thank you so much for having us here tonight. Thank you. 
Thank you.
I want to join the Christmas choir. No, it's only ages four through fifth grade. You don't look four years old. Yeah, we are. No, you're not. Yeah, we are. No, you are not. Yes, we are. You guys shouldn't be lying in church. Yeah, he's right. We're going to go apologize to him. If you guys want to be part of the kids' choir, we're having our first meeting December 3rd at 1 p.m. right here in the sanctuary. And remember, it's for four years old to fifth grade. Man, I finally found something that I can be a part of. Come join the men's prayer meeting this Friday, December 1st at 7 a.m. Do you see these gigantic video screens? You know, where you read the worship lyrics and watch our amazing videos. Well, we need an experienced video technician for our media team. If that's you, apply in the church offices. At this time, we want to release junior high and high school to go meet your teachers in the lobby. And parents, you can meet them back there after the service. We also want to let you know if the Lord's leading you to give, you can give in the boxes at the back of the sanctuary, in the lobby, or online at our website. Let's go to prayer now and just take a few moments and quiet our hearts before the Lord, uh, before the Bible study. Wow. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you that you love us, and that you have pursued us and caught us and brought us to this place. Thank you, Lord, that you came and died in our place so that we might have access to eternity with you. Lord, we ask that you would fill this place now with your presence, your Holy Spirit. We have uh, had a, a weekend of being thankful, so we want to be thankful again this evening and just say that we're grateful for all that you've done for us and all that you are doing. We ask, Lord, that you would... Uh, Send your spirit to teach us now that you would speak into our hearts and minds. Cause us to grow in you so that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in. Do that now, we ask in Jesus' name and all of God's children agreed by saying, Amen. If you wouldn't mind standing with me, if you can, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, 
hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we ask that you speak to us now from your word, and we might grow and, and just be blessed by your grace. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's children agreed by saying, amen. You may be seated, please. This is a little low, guys. It's a little higher. Thanks. <clears throat> I'm sounding like Kermit the Frog after uh, I sang with you. It's your fault. You made me sing. So, blinded by the light, uh, more than 40 years ago, uh, there was a song with that title that was a hit song. Uh, maybe some of you are old enough to remember 1977, Blinded by the Light. Or uh, some of you are old enough, but you still can't remember 1977, right? <laughs> it was actually uh, Manfred Mann's Earth Band that recorded the hit song, but it was written by uh, Bruce Springsteen, and it's uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, number 82 of the 500 highest um, rock and roll songs of all time. I remember that uh, when it came out on the radio, when the car still had radios, uh, we'd, uh, a bunch of friends on us would be trying to sing the words, but there was no way you can figure out the words to it because Springsteen was writing about some kind of a spiritual trip infused with drugs or something. But um, one of the lines of it says, Mommy always told me not to look into the eye of the sun, but Mommy, that's where it's fun. So it wasn't a brilliant piece, but um, it is, in fact, an appropriate title for the sections we're looking at. Uh, the one we just read about in nine takes us back 2,000 years, and of course, it is a true, the original Blinded by the Light, event, a truly spiritual enlightenment, that day when Saul was literally blinded and then came to faith. So we've all heard and perhaps used the expression, the lights are on, there nobody or home. That's uh, a little bit where uh, Saul's mind was at this time. He was one of the most religious men. He was a very uh, motivated Pharisee, a rabbi. And uh, he was almost uh, blinded from a relationship with God because of the formal religion that he had entered into. It's a warning to all who might believe that they're spiritual or that they have something to offer to God. It's possible to sincerely believe that we are spiritual, but in fact, be blind to very crucial spiritual truths. So this record is the most important, probably in the New Testament, salvation experience. Because Saul is uh, going to influence that generation 
in every generation all the way up until this generation. Jesus, of course, is the premier, most important person, but Saul is the person saved that really has written down almost a third of the New Testament. So he has had a great impact on the world, and he still does even to this night, as now we are studying about him and how he came to the Lord. So in this passage, Saul asks two very important questions, uh, two questions that we need, all of us need certain answers for. The first question is, who are you, Lord? That's verse 8. And the most important question for which every person on the planet needs an answer. Who, who is your Lord? Who is your master? Who is your ruler? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Some, uh, how you answer that question will determine your eternal destiny. The second question, Lord, what will you have me do? That's in verse 6 there is probably the second most important question that a person could ask. God's will for our life, for your life, God's will for my life, should be the heart's desire of every believer, every child of God who has a view of eternity. So quick review of where we've been. Uh, Pentecost, the joy of Pentecost is past. That actually was spoken of in chapter 1 of Acts, then in chapter 2 it happened, then Peter gives his uh, amazing sermon that 3,000 people get saved, and then the following chapter 4, he does a second one on the Temple Mount, and 2,000 more get saved. And the church is slowly being established in the first Christian church in Jerusalem. So we've been following that, and uh, Paul is... Uh, about ready to enter into what's happening there. Now, this moment for Paul is, I believe, one of the strongest pictures of God's grace in the entire Bible. Um, every time I read this story of Saul, the grace of God shouts to me. You'll remember that, that the word grace means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor from God. And it's available every moment of every day to every person. Here we see, we see God take this uh, fundamental rabbi who is uh, fanatical and transform him into the great apostle of the Gentiles. Um, so we can't help but see that God uses somebody who's a terrible criminal. He, I want you to know he's, he's murdering Christians. No one in this room, no one within the sound of my voice has been as terrible a person as Paul was. Now, he was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He thought he was doing what was the right thing. Now, Paul became without question, the most influential man here in the book of Acts. However, there's a danger that we might tempt it, be tempted to think that Saul is this great intellect. He was obviously very educated and very intelligent. But Paul knew better than anyone else that without God's grace, 
he was nothing spiritually. Listen to what he said of his own testimony in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But it's by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Paul knew that his life and everywhere that that this good that came into his life was from God's hands. The result, God's grace, working in him and through him. So our verses, our text here records the day when Paul was uh, apprehended by grace. And, and that's the right word because God's grace chased him down and grabbed him and uh, grace had been after him for a long time, up to this day. But on this day, describing these verses, Paul was captured once and for all by the marvelous, matchless, amazing, whatever word works for you, grace of God. There are three parts here. Verse 1 and 2 is attitude. Verse 3 through 7, the attention. And then 8 and 9, his apprehension. He was apprehended by God chased down, captured by God. Grace pursues a person in the opening verse, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, still breathing threats and murder, literally the Greek says he was breathing it in and out in both directions. It was the very atmosphere in which he was living he lived in this climate. He, he was dedicated to a, a bloody quest, you could even say, to eliminate the cult of this Nazarene from Judea, Jesus. He was living in an atmosphere of hate and violence and murder. He was sincere. He didn't yet understand that he was living at the beginning of a new covenant. He would, and he will write about it as we get into his letters but the old covenant had been fulfilled and Paul is, or Saul is still defending the old. And because he was doing that, he found himself opposing God. It was uh, a strange time, the, the break between the old covenant, the Old Testament, and the new covenant, the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, it says that the old covenant became obsolete during this time. It passed away. So, A.T. Robinson said, threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed, like a war horse who smelled the smell of gunpowder in a battlefield. So, he's against the disciples of the Lord. He's hating the church. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He hated everything he had to do with Christianity. He did everything within his power to destroy it. That's his intent as he gets the arrest warrants and begins his trip to Damascus. He went to the high priest, we read. This is the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, this name uh, should be pretty familiar to us by now. 
he was the one uh, who oversaw the death of Stephen as well as Jesus. We have a, but not long ago in Israel, his ossuary was found. That's the bone box of the high priest Caiaphas. It says so right on the end of it. Now, it was found by um, just happenstance, if you believe that. I think it's another God incident because he keeps revealing more and more archaeology to confirm that the Bible is true. But in 1990, there was a bulldozer that was scraping the side of a hill flat to build a new park called the Freedom Park in the south side of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the blade in the front of the dozer went into a hole. And they backed it out and they looked in and they saw all these bone boxes. Now, the size of that box is made to be for the longest human bone, which is the thigh bone of a leg. And so the way it works in that culture in the first century is they would bury the body in a limestone cavern and the limestone would decay the flesh and then the bones would be gathered and put together in a box like this. And if you were um, a very important person, then they'd have a box built just for you, your family would. But if not, uh, then there would be several different people put in the same box. So um, this is Caiaphas from Acts chapter 7, verse 12. And uh, it is uh, clearly from the first century and uh, radiocarbon dated and the material inside and there's uh, a lot of other ways to date it from the surrounding area. So we literally have the bones of someone who's mentioned in the New Testament. And, and this keeps happening actually in most of our lifetime. In the last 50 years, they found a, uh, a, a stone with the King David's name chiseled in it up in Tel Dan and they found uh, the, uh, a huge limestone uh, slab that had Pontius Pilate's name in the date that he was the prefect, the governor over Caesarea by the sea. So uh, as what we know about this bone box is that Caiaphas was about 60 years old when he died and uh, they are uh, arguing about what killed him. Uh, so that's what archaeologists and anthropologists do when they have too much time on their hands. Um, they'll be arguing probably till Jesus returns exactly what killed him. But there it is. That's the guy we're talking about. Verse 2. And so Saul asked letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is asking for the high priest to give him permission to go to the city of Damascus, which is the first time the gospel will go outside of the limits of Israel. This is a picture of what Damascus looked like in about 1897 to 1900. This is what the roads looked like. That is the, the, 
we'll see it next week. That is the street called Straight because it was a straight road all the way through the city of Damascus. And uh, that's a Roman um, arch that was built there in the second century. That is the, city, the straight street. And there is the bazaar at the far end of it. It's called the Grand Bazaar of Damascus. This is what the, uh, the walls of Damascus look like. This is the spot where traditionally we'll read later that Saul is let down over the wall to escape being captured and taken prisoner. So um, Damascus is a very interesting city. Damascus is um, considered by the UN, the United Nations, to be the oldest, longest inhabited city in the world that uh, we know it goes back to uh, Genesis chapter 14 and 15 when, uh, in fact, Abraham will chase down those who had captured his uh, cousin and or his nephew, literally, um, all the way to the north. So th- Abraham is r- roughly 2000 B.C., So that city was inhabited 2,000 years before Saul got there. And um, there's another strategy here that uh, I think I see, but I don't know this for sure. But it looks like God has taken this man, Saul, outside of the borders of Israel so that he can sensitize him to taking the gospel to the whole world. And uh, so he ends up in Damascus, uh, which is 140 miles or so north of Jerusalem. And uh, today there's still many churches there. We think of uh, Syria, where Damascus is the capital still. Uh, Syria as being um, um, Muslim which it is, the majority, but it has a very large Christian population. Um, There are 20 large churches in the city of Damascus, and uh, the largest Greek Orthodox cathedral outside of Athens is there, so uh, there are a lot of believers still there to this day. Notice it says... uh, so that if he found any who were of the way, and it's capitalized. So believers were first called part of the way, the path, Jesus said he was. And uh, this is not the cult that's named the way, nor is it the church that's over in San Bernardino that calls itself the way. Uh, But that's not a bad name for a church because it's what the early church all believers were called. You're part of the way. Uh, It would be okay to say. Um, So um, he's bound, he's going to capture people, it says, and uh, men or women, that he might bring them shackled, bound, in chains back to Jerusalem, handcuffed believers, men and women. Verse 3, now, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, 
and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. So he's journeying. There's others with him, we know. And uh, just I, tradition says he was just out of the, outside the city walls of Damascus when this light came from heaven. Now, God is pictured as being in light throughout Scripture. Um, this is the first of six different visions that Paul has. Uh, Acts 19, 9, 10, 18, 9, 10, Acts 22, and uh, verse 17, Acts 23, verse 11, and uh, 24. So Paul is going to have many visions. And uh, the light, he tells us when we get to... Uh, 1 Corinthians was brighter than the sun. Um, several years later, he wrote 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Scripture, light is a symbol of the truth of God, moral purity, to be more precise. It's a, a symbol of guidance. Light is a, is a picture of revelation. It's, it's also a picture of even life itself. Um, Genesis 1 reads, then God said, let there be light. And light was. Um, the fiery light that envelops Saul seems to be like the light seen by Moses at the burning bush. The pillar of light that the children of Israel uh, saw every evening as they were going across the wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula. The brilliant light that came at the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. The light that the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before them. The light was so bright that it even penetrated the darkness of Saul's heart, I guess you could say. It filled him with a revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, resurrected from the dead. Verse 4, then Saul fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light was so strong that he was knocked down. Charles Spurgeon said, Paul was a great man, and I have no doubt that on the way to Damascus, he rode a very high horse. But it takes only a few seconds to radically change the man, how quickly God brought him down. So conversion requires humility. God is God, and we are his creation. We are a piece of clay, uh, a mud jar. The best place to be is where you understand that you are a, a needy person. And so it is we find Paul face down. First Peter 5.5 5 says, And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he shall exalt you in due time. So Saul is being humbled right here. Saul, Saul, Jesus speaks. Why persecute me? We actually think Saul has been persecuting the church, the people, not Jesus. But Jesus said something like that early on in his ministry in Matthew 25. He said, and the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So Jesus was already teaching us, his disciples, that uh, what we do to the least of the disciples, other believers, is like doing it to Jesus. Now, we notice that the first words that Jesus speaks to Saul is a question. In the Garden of Eden, on that day when men first fell, God came into the garden and he asked Adam a question, you'll remember. He said, Adam, where are you? <laughs> that is the question God is still asking people today, men and women. If Adam had thought through the question, he would have uh, found himself far along the road back to God. You can't find and know the way back until you know where you are. So the first question God asks us when we are without Jesus is, where are you? <laughs> where are you in life? When you answer that question, you're already on the way back. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So take that question apart. Something like, what is behind it? What are your motives, Saul? What are your reasons for doing what you're doing? What do you hope to accomplish by killing believers? What is this that is driving you? Why are you persecuting me? So you can be sure that in the hours of darkness that followed in Damascus that Paul spent a lot of time pondering those questions. No doubt he had to think through that he calls Saul's name twice. Saul, Saul. We see that happening in other places in Scripture. Jesus, when he wants to really forcefully speak into your life, he says your name twice. Luke chapter 10, Martha, Martha, why are you so, are you so worried about many things? Even in Matthew 23, speaking to the city, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. How often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. So the Lord could have been angry, but that isn't what comes across here, at least to most people that study it. He's not angry. Saul was resisting the Holy Spirit, yet Jesus reacts with compassion and mercy. And so Saul answers, who are you, Lord? Whew, another great question. Who is the Lord of your life? 
who is the Lord of my life? Well, sometimes it ends up being me, even though I've told the Lord many times over the years that I've been trying to follow him, that uh, be Lord. I want you to be Lord. But it doesn't take very long until there's some pressure on, and I find myself helping God out, <laughs> and he's no longer making the decisions I am. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. <laughs> Whoa, that must have caught Saul up really quickly. So uh, he did add the word Lord, though. Who are you, Lord? <laughs> I don't know how long that gap was. But uh, when Jesus said, I am Jesus, Paul must have swallowed hard when he heard that answer and, and, and thought something like, wow, I almost thought you said your name was Jesus. That's not what you said. That can't be possible. Uh, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? That's an interesting bit of symbolism. Okay, that's a proverb in the first century. Um, the goads were a long pointed stick that you probably know had a metal tip on it and they would use it if you were plowing uh, with horses or oxen or something. And uh, you're plowing along in a field and all of a sudden they hit a, a hard spot or a rock or something. And then the guy with the, the harness would uh, take this and poke the back of the heel of a horse. I don't know about oxen, never tried to do it with oxen. Um, but a horse picks up his foot and puts it forward. And so that makes him make the step forward unless you do it too hard and then he kicks you across the street. But um, so he's saying uh, this iron pike that's used to urge on beasts of burden, this ancient proverb he's applying to Saul. Saul had been pricked. He'd been goaded, I guess you would say, in his conscience with the things that he's seen and heard about Jesus. Yet he's kicking against these things by persecuting those who have spoken to him. Don't resist God's conviction. Conviction, it's not a pleasant thing to experience, but it is sometimes exactly what we need. It's a gift from God. It's a little bit like the gas gauge in your car, assuming you're not driving an uh, EV electric vehicle, but uh, most of us came here with a car or a truck that has a gas gauge in it. And um, it's kind of like conviction. It's not nice when it reminds you all the time that you're getting low on fuel. But what's really bad is when you, I ignored the readings not long ago, and then ran out of the gas. The only good news was I was right next door to a gas station, but uh, when you realize how needy you are, it's time to go to the right place, the right filling station, if you will, God in your life and in mine. So the Holy Spirit had been pricking and goading Saul's conscience for a long time. You'll notice that I, I use the word Paul and Saul interchangeably. 
And, and that's because the Hebrew name is Saul, like King Saul, who David was trying to escape from all the time. But the, the Greek name the, uh, is, in fact, Paul with the P. And, uh, and so it, it's not so much that Paul got his name changed from Saul, it's that when he was with Hebrew speakers, he no doubt spoke Hebrew. In fact, we're told in a couple of places in, a little further on in the book that he was preaching in Hebrew, but he also was from Tarsus. Now, Tarsus um, was the second most important university city in the Roman Empire. It was all Greek speaking, and the university there, there was only one that was more important in the world at that time, and that was the one in Athens. And so Paul was born at, into uh, one of the most educated cities in the Roman Empire. So he, speak, he could speak Hebrew as well as Greek, obviously. He obviously writes in Greek. All his letters are in Greek. And, uh, but that's his name. So um, Saul is uh, ready for a confrontation with the enemy that's saying that Moses' law is no longer valid. He, he rode along with his vigilante committee with the permission of the high priest, and he's planning on destroying those who would try and bring in this new teaching of a new covenant. God knows how to get our attention. God showed up, and he interrupts Saul's plans. God shot up maybe a laser beam of light from uh, the throne room of heaven that stopped this man. And suddenly, Saul, who was pursuing others, finds the tables turned. And he's being pursued by God. And it comes in the form of light and then of a voice. The same voice that had spoken the cosmos into existence called his name, Saul, Saul. The same voice that had spoken to Moses at Mount Sinai and given the law, Paul heard. The same voice that had spoken to Lazarus <laughs> and said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out of the grave there in Bethany. The same voice that raised the widow's son, the widow of Nain, at the funeral procession, Jesus went and, and spoke. The same voice that caused all the, the soldiers to fall backwards in the Garden of Gethsemane when they said, are you the Messiah? Are you Jesus of Nazareth? He said, I am. And the tetragrammaton was so strong coming from God's mouth that it knocked him down. The same voice that cried, it's finished from the cross to Telestai. He paid the price. The same voice that calls you and calls me today. The, some, the same voice that will someday say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. 
as you come into heaven. I want to hear his voice. I want to be a sheep of his fold. I want to know his voice. Jesus had come to make a change in Saul's life. So he reveals his identity to him. Verse 6, so he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Second great question. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? Should be the same question for you and I to Jesus. Now, who you are is the first question. The second question is actually your creed. The Latin word is credo for I believe. So what is it that you believe? What do you want me to do? What do you believe about someone or something is your creed? So we answer the question about who Jesus is. Lord, what do you want me to do is uh, you have to get the first question right before you can go to the second one. Because if you think the Lord is Buddha or one of the 300 million Hindu gods in the world uh, or Confucius or Allah and you ask that, answer that question, who are you? Well, it's Allah. Well, then you're going to get the wrong answer to the second question. What do you want me to do? The way that God leads us is one step at a time. I was reading through an old hymn that I was thinking about us learning. It's an old English hymn, but it reads a Christmas song, but it fits in with Saul here being chased by God. There blew a horn in Bethlehem. Christ sat on Mary's knee. And oh, she said, my child, she said, they blow that horn for thee. For thou shalt hunt the heart of man. Thy prey from hole to hole. Till at the last thy little hands shall close upon his soul. Isn't that interesting that we are being pursued by God? Every, every person in this room. So, verse 7, And then the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. The men of Saul could hear the sound of a voice, literally a noise, it says in the Greek here, but they couldn't distinguish words. Uh, we're told so in Acts 22, verse 9, that they heard a sound, but they couldn't distinguish the diction, the, the pronunciation of the words. Last section. Then Saul arose from the ground, verse 8, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul stands up, but he's blind as a bat, can't see a thing. And uh, literally, the Greek says, could see nothing could not see any of the men traveling with him. But now the one who is leading is suddenly having to be led like a, 
as he said, like a little child. He'll say, and um, this whole event is recounted again by Paul in Acts 22. And um, there, verse 11, and when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus like a little boy. Verse 9, and he was there in the city of Damascus three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. I don't understand completely the significance of the three days, but you can't help but notice that three days in the belly of the whale, Jonah spent, Jesus spent three days in the grave. Must have been difficult for Saul while he was assessing his life. Three days without any sight, blinded by the light. There it is. He's an overload, you might say. More truth than what he could handle. That he needed some time just to gather his thoughts, to put it all together. Consider what had happened. Let it sink in. Ask God, what does this mean? So Saul was exposed in an instant to a flash-like photographic paper, but... Uh, like a developing photo, it would take some time in a dark room for him to understand what he had seen. Saul lives in three days of blindness. Some change their ways when they see the light. Others take longer. They change their ways when they feel the heat uh, some of us are a little more stubborn than others and requires some heat. So the question comes, what now, Lord? What do I do? He's turning it over and over again in his brain. There's an old and well-known poem by Francis S. Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. And I think it describes, sums up, of what's happening here to Saul. The first paragraph is, I fled to him. He was running from God. Thompson is trying to hide from God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of years, I hid from him and under running laughter. God seems to delight in pursuing and chasing down his worst enemies, even to the very edge of hell if necessary. What do you mean, Pastor? Moses, Moses was a murderer, yet God took him later as an old man who had a speech impediment and used him to deliver his people. Samson, sinned over and over again against God, yet he killed more Philistines at the end of his life than he had during his entire ministry. Abraham lied twice, yet he was used by God and became the father of the nation. Jacob was the deceiver, yet the Lord transformed and used him greatly. Simon Peter 
preached the greatest message and had his greatest ministry after he had denied the Lord three times. Your past condition is no obstacle. Your present circumstances are no obstacle. Philip Yancey, my favorite author, wrote a, a true story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And I want to close with this. It's a true story of a, someone he knows, family member, who grew up in Traverse City, Michigan. Disgusted with her old-fashioned parents who overreacted to her nose ring and the music that she was listening to and the length of her skirts, she runs away. She ends up in Detroit where she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. The man with the big car, she calls him Boss, recognizes that since she's underage, men would pay premium for her. She goes to work for him. Things are good for a while, life is good, but she gets sick for a few days and it amazes her how quickly the boss turns angry and mean. Before she knows it, she's out on the streets without a penny to her name and she still turns a couple of tricks a night, but all that money goes to support her drug habit. One night, while sleeping on the metal steam grates in the city, she began to feel less like a woman, a woman of the world, and more like a little girl. She begins to whimper, God, why did I leave? My dog back home eats better than I do now. She knows that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight calls home get three straight connections with the answering machine. Finally, she leaves a message. Quote, Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and we'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I'll understand. During the seven-hour bus ride, she's preparing a speech for her father. And when the bus comes to a stop at the Traverse City Station, the driver announces a 15-minute stop. She thinks, 15 minutes to decide my entire life. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to, what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that had played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing on noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through tear 
quivering in her eyes and begins her little memorized speech. He interrupts his daughter. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. We'll be late. A big party is waiting for you at home. Would you stand, please, and we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient, as Paul said. That your grace is enough. Your amazing grace that gives every one of us favor with you when we don't deserve any favor at all. We thank you, Lord, that you are calling out even now as you did to Saul, to people here. Christians, please pray. I wonder if there's anyone here this evening that you need to surrender your life to God, that he's speaking to you. This is your opportunity to ask him to forgive your sins and be forgiven completely. I won't do anything to embarrass you, but if you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, if you'd like to know that you're going to spend eternity with God, would you let me know you're ready by looking up at me and raising your hand? I won't do anything to embarrass you. I'll just acknowledge your hand. Anyone here this evening God is speaking to? Oh, I don't see any hands. Oh, sorry very back. God bless you. Anyone else God is speaking to? All right. Well, would you please pray along with us? We're going to ask God to forgive our sins, and he's going to do so. Everybody, please say to make it easy for him. Everybody, please say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. Please forgive my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to go to these double doors, somebody will meet you there. I'd love to give you a Bible, pray for you. Anybody that needs prayer or needs a Bible, go there. To the rest, God bless you. Give somebody a hug before you go home. Good night.